We are returning this morning uh, to our ongoing study of uh, John 17, not week after week, but it seems separated each time by two or three weeks as we are this time. This is referred to as the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ and what J.C. Ryle refers to as the most remarkable chapter in the Bible. This prayer is the substance, really, the example of what the writer to the Hebrews refers to as our Lord's ongoing, even now, work of intercession as our high priest. As you may be familiar with the book of Hebrews, it makes its biggest argument with respect to Jesus being better than Moses, than the angels. The largest argument is that Jesus is a better high priest than the high priests of the Old Covenant. And in that extended argument that he makes or the author makes in the book of Hebrews, you will remember that the main highlight of the argument, of course, is that Jesus, instead of offering the uh, blood of bulls and goats, which could not save human beings, offered his own blood, entered into the holy of holies in heaven, of which the earthly tabernacle and temple are but a picture or a reproduction. And again, he didn't take the blood of bulls and goats, as the Old Testament commanded, but rather his own blood, which could atone for the sins of sinful men and women like you and I. He took that into his father. His father's wrath was assuaged, turned away because of the satisfaction that his blood brought. And therefore, God is able to forgive us our sins because of the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we come to the table this morning to remember our Savior and his sacrifice for us. Now, this, of course, is the faithful work of our high priest and one in which we rejoice and are quite familiar with. But the writer to the Hebrews reminds us as he speaks about Jesus being better than the Old Testament priests that his ongoing ministry is equally as important. That blood was offered once for all for the sins of his people. But he tells us in chapter 7 that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds a priesthood, his priesthood, permanently because he continues forever. Remember, Jesus was raised from the dead, ascended to God's right hand. Consequently, the writer to the Hebrews says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see what the writer to the Hebrews is saying that part of his ongoing ministry for us, and a necessary ministry it is, is that Jesus is literally praying us home to heaven. He is right now, as our high priest, interceding for us, praying for us. And what John 17 is, as Jesus here prays out loud for his disciples to hear and to record as God preserves it as a lasting testimony, to his faithful ministry, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. What he is doing is giving us an example of what it is he prays for, for every believer who belongs to him, given to him by the Father. 
Here in these 26 verses, he is telling us right now what he is praying for you and for me if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will remember that this chapter is divided then into three sections, three expanding spheres, as one writer says, for whom he is praying. Verses 1 through 5 is his prayer for the glory of the Father and the Son. Verses 6 through 19, his prayer for his own immediate disciples, 11 total. And then verses 20 through 26, his prayer for all of those who would believe because of them. Now, we are moving slowly through this chapter intentionally. I'm not working my way through the Gospel of John. If we were, we probably would move more quickly. We're just simply studying this chapter for our great encouragement. And so having studied the first section, verses 1 through 5, we turn our attention this morning to the second section, 6 through 19, the largest of the three. And as we did in our initial study of those first five verses, we're going to look at these verses in an introductory way this morning to better understand all that Jesus is teaching us. And so it's that it's before us. Please stand as we hear once again God's word read, that you would receive it, delight in it as the word of God. John 17, beginning in verse 6, Jesus speaking again to his father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, bless this holy word that we have read, that we might give a conscionable hearing to it, 
that you would grant by your spirit understanding and that you would give every grace, Father, through this means that you have appointed for our growth in Jesus, that we may faithfully serve and honor him. We thank you for his prayer for us and pray that we would be faithful to all that he has prayed. And we ask it and give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The first five verses are typically described by commentators as Jesus praying for himself. And if you read those verses as we've studied them together, you can see why that is. He is clearly not praying for anyone else. Uh, That means his disciples, the immediate 11, or those who would believe because of their word. And so it's reasonable to understand why this would be called a prayer for uh, Jesus or a prayer by Jesus for himself. His desire in that prayer, the first five verses, is that through the work that he is about to do, Remember the language of these verses. The hour has finally come so many times in John. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And now here in John 17, the hour has finally come that the Son would be glorified, but to the end that the Father through the Son would receive all glory. And so this is Jesus' great focus in these verses. I prefer to look at it as Jesus praying for the glory of the Father and of the Son. He is praying that he himself, through the work God had given him to do, would be glorified to the glory of God the Father, who initiated this great work of salvation as we understand it. And so in these verses, we see that clear emphasis of our Savior And after all, Jesus is simply reminding us what he would tell his own disciples when they earlier asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, as they often heard him praying. And as they heard him pray, they were drawn to the way in which he approached God, always using the term in John especially some 60 plus times, or more than 100 times, I should say, six times in this section, But over a hundred times in John, always referring to God as his father, the disciples were drawn to that. And so you remember he taught them how it is to pray. Our father, he said. But remember the emphasis from the very beginning, hallowed be thy name. It's another word that simply means glorify yourself through us. And so Jesus is demonstrating in these first five verses how the glory of God the Father consumes him as a faithful son. He recognizes that the Father has given to him in accordance with the covenant of redemption of eternity past, where the Father chose a people. We talked about this last time. Chose a people in Jesus, that Jesus would come in the fullness of time to give his life as a ransom for them. Remember how we talked about it, that this language of those whom you have given to me all throughout the gospel of John and all throughout this prayer especially is how Jesus the Son and God the Father talk to one another with regard to this great salvation. We have, as we've noted, our terminology as Christians born and coming from the scriptures And those terms are good, justification, sanctification, adoption, all of these terms that we talk about, things like redemption, 
All of these are good terms to understand and to grow in our knowledge of. But when God the Father and God the Son speak, as it were, to one another, as the triune God, they speak in this way. The ones whom you, the Father, have given to me, the Son. And so this language is all throughout the scriptures, very, very much impossible to deny, though the doctrine itself is often difficult for us to comprehend. But here in these verses, Jesus is focused in his prayer with respect to that salvation that he desires through giving his life as a ransom for the people God had given to him, God the Father, that God would glorify him so that he in turn would glorify the Father. And you see that last part of the prayer, verse 5, his desire ultimately is that he himself, having laid aside that glory in order to humble himself and become obedient even to the cross in his humiliation, would be restored, that glory restored to him that he possesses with the Father and with the Spirit before the world existed. So those are the first five verses. We've learned much already, the emphasis upon the glory of God. This morning, I want us to look at this passage, 6 through 19, again in an introductory way, as Jesus prays for his immediate disciples. Now, there's a few caveats in the prayer itself. He's not praying for Judas, one of the 12, Judas, the one who would betray him. Judas, whom he refers to here as the one who is the son of destruction. In other places, the one spoken of in the Old Testament, ordained by God himself to be the very betrayer of Christ. The one who is not numbered among God's elect. This is not the loss of one who was elect. This is the inclusion of one who is outside of the elect who fulfills the very purpose of God in betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not, in this prayer, praying for Judas. He is praying for Peter. And we see that contrast, don't we? Judas left to the despair of his own life apart from God and takes his own life. Peter restored by the power of the Holy Spirit through the faithful intercession of Jesus who tells him in the very next chapter, Peter, I have prayed for you. And so clearly the focus of these verses, all of them, is upon the 11 disciples whom the Lord had given to Jesus that they might continue the work that Jesus began And through them, continue even from heaven now in the advancement of the kingdom that he came to bring. Now, as I say that, the caveat of Judas is there, but there's another caveat, and it's this. When we talk about these verses, we need to understand that what Jesus prays for these disciples is what he prays for you and I as well. By limiting it only to these disciples and saying it has no bearing upon us, we do ourselves a great disservice. Because in these verses, though his emphasis is immediately upon these 11, the things that he prays for and what he asked the Father for is exactly what he asked for you and I as well. In fact, when we come to verses 20 through 26, we're going to see a lot of overlap. 
But I want you to know up front, though our emphasis is upon these men uniquely, these are also prayers that he prays for you and I as well. And so there are several things, five really, that I want to highlight as we just look in an introductory way of these verses, verses 6 through 19. Uh, Six things, characteristics, if you will, of these uh, men for whom Jesus prays. Notice, first of all, that these are, according to Jesus, men that are given by God the Father to Jesus Christ. They are given by God the Father to Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people, these men, whom you gave me out of the world. And then again, verse 9, you see the same language. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me. These 11 were uniquely given by God the Father to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We see in the gospel accounts how they each uh, came to follow and become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of time, in, in space and time. But before the foundation of the world, these men were chosen by God and ordained that they might uniquely be the disciples, the learners who would live with Jesus for three and a half years And then after his ascension into heaven would go on to proclaim the message of the gospel to the whole world. These were men chosen by God uniquely and given to Jesus Christ. Given, as many commentators note, as a wonderful love gift, a precious love gift to Jesus You can think of their ministry over three and a half years, how they drew mutual encouragement from one another and the fellowship that they enjoyed together. That was a gift to Jesus as well. Their faithfulness in many ways, though not all, in supporting and encouraging him, standing with him in many places. One writer says this, what do you give to the one, Jesus, who has and possesses everything? What you give him, the answer is, is a people to praise him. And that's what these disciples are. They are a gift to Jesus, ultimately for his praise and for his glory. They are given by God the Father to Jesus. Now, we've seen this already in verse 2, as we've looked at the broader implications of the doctrine of election. And we understand that this is particular as well in this case, that these 11 and no others would be given to Jesus in this way. One of the great pictures that we have in the Bible of the gifts that God gives to his people, to his son in this way, is the beautiful illustration in the Bible of a bride adorned for her husband, Many of us have just gone through a recent wedding. Many of us will go through weddings in the near future. And you know that great and most important time in the wedding when the minister stands before not only the congregation but before the bride, her betrothed, and the father of the bride and asks this most important question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? The father at that point is prompted through even tears to say, I do. I give this woman to be married to this man. 
When the Bible speaks of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be the disciples that we speak of in these verses or the whole of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it speaks of her as a bride adorned for her husband who gives this bride beautiful in the righteousness of Christ to this beloved Savior, this groom. It is I, the Father, who gives this people to my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how the Bible teaches us to think of ourselves as individual followers of Jesus Christ, as we are part of that glorious bride prepared and adorned for Christ when he comes again in glory. Do you think of yourself that way, brother and sister? Do you think of yourself as a gift given by God the Father to Jesus Christ? Most of us are taught from very early in our Christian lives not to think too highly of ourselves. But this is not a thinking too highly of ourselves as we think of ourselves in the beauty of Christ's righteousness adorned for our beloved groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a gift to him individually and corporately as the bride of Christ. And these disciples, as frail and as faulty as they were, were men given by God the Father to Jesus the Son. Secondly, they were men who were taken out of the world to be given as a bride adorned for Christ, to be given as members of that church. They were taken out of the world. You have given them, verse 6, whom you gave me out of the world Verse 14, you see the same language, that they were taken out of the world. They're no longer, verse 16, part of the world. Now, that has a very practical implication, right? We, we know that. You read in Matthew 4, for instance, that as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Matthew tells us, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him immediately. Matthew, the tax collector himself, called by Jesus away from and out of the world of tax collecting. So there's a practical implication here. These were men who were literally called out of the world and their normal occupations to follow Jesus, to become itinerant preachers and those who would carry the gospel to the world. But there's an aspect here, and we know it here in Jesus' own words, that when he talks about world here, he's not merely talking about worldly occupations, worldly professions. That means all of us have to leave whatever worldly occupation we're in and, and go into religious studies. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to be his witnesses in the midst of the world. But these men uniquely were called out of that to serve a very special purpose But world has a deeper meaning in the Bible. It has a moral aspect to it. 
what the world is according to the scriptures is all that is opposed to God. Everything that is at enmity with God, you heard it in the language of our response from 1 John chapter 2. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, all that stands opposed to God. What Jesus is saying is you've called them away from that life, which is a life of self-seeking, a life that seeks to satisfy one's own pleasures and lusts rather than the glory of God. And what Jesus is saying is that these men are no longer part of the world. They're no longer in that world in that sense. They're no longer of that world. They've been removed out of it by the power of God through the Holy Spirit and the word. That that will become evident in the coming uh, verses and what we'll see. But, but they're no longer of that mindset is really what Jesus is saying. They've been taken out of the world and been given and reassigned, as it were, to Jesus Christ for his purposes. Now, we're going to study this more closely because of what Jesus actually prays for them with regard to their relationship to the world and how he calls us as believers to separation from the world, and how do we rightly understand that. But but here we see in an introductory way that Jesus notes that these men are taken out of the world. Thirdly, notice again in verse 6, so much in verse 6, men to whom the name of God has been manifested. I have manifested your name to these People. Again, his focus clearly is upon those uh, 11 disciples that lived with him, traveled with him, ministered with him over those three and a half years. And what he says here is that Jesus uniquely, now not exclusively, because he proclaimed the truth to many, but uniquely as disciples, a rabbi with his disciples, his learners. Jesus uniquely has manifested the name of God, the Father, to these men. Now, what does that mean? In the Bible, when it talks about the name of God, it's a reference to his attributes, his being, his person, all that he is as displayed by what he does and his character. And so when you think of the name of God that Jesus has manifested, think of the ministry of three and a half years, the countless lessons and teachings that he spoke to his disciples with regard to who the Father is. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, he says. And when he said that, he says, what I'm doing is what the Father has given me to do. And what I do, the Father does. So he's displaying the character of his Father. And really, that's the focus here. That's the name, literally, that he has revealed and manifested to them. The name Father. Not merely Jehovah, not merely Adonai, not merely El Elohim. All the names of the Old Testament, the names of God as the one who heals the sick. He saw that. They saw that displayed in his miracles. 
The name of God was displayed in every miracle that Jesus did. His character, his mercy, his love, his kindness, his justice, everything was displayed and manifested to these men so that they would have an understanding of who this God was. But the name, clearly in the prayer itself, six times in John's gospel, over a hundred times, is the name of God that is most precious and dear to Jesus, the name of Father. Again, in this prayer, six times he addresses him in his disciples' hearing that this is Father. When he taught them to pray, he didn't say, pray to my Father. He says, pray our Father. When he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, he said to his disciples, I now go to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. This is the manifestation uniquely to these 11 for their growth and ability and their understanding that they might know the one who had sent the Son, namely the Father. And that name, that name of God has been manifested to them. Two more quickly to note. These are men who have kept, again, verse 6 and verse 8, these are men who have kept his word. Men who have kept his word. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They have believed the truth that I've given to them. Now, it doesn't take long for us to think how amazing this is, as Jesus describes these 11 disciples. Our minds quickly go to the countless times in the Gospels where Jesus' legitimate, righteous frustration is evident. Remember the account of Jesus being on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. Down below from that glorious scene is a, is a horrific scene of a man who brings his son who's being thrown into the fire in these epileptic fits. And the disciples cannot cast out this demon. Remember how Jesus comes down from the mountain of transfiguration and he says those words, O ye of little faith, speaking to the disciples, how long is it that I must stay with you? It's a paraphrase, but you get the frustration in Jesus, a righteous frustration. How many times did they misunderstand his teachings with regard to what he had come to do, that he had not come to set up an earthly kingdom and overthrow Rome, but he came to establish a kingdom that is eternal and not of this world. How many times does he have to remind them over and over again of the kind of death that he has to face ordained by the Father. It's remarkable that Jesus would say that here are men that you have given to me who have kept your word. But it tells us a lot about Jesus and a lot about how he sees us, his people. He knows our hearts. He knows the direction of our lives and our hearts. Despite our failures and our sins, he describes us so graciously as the orientation of our hearts now made new through him and by the presence of his spirit. 
Old writers have taken note of this, and they've said things like this. Thomas Manton, for instance, says the faith of the apostles here was weak. They had but a confused view of Christ's Godhead and eternal generation. They knew little of his death, were filled with the thought of an earthly kingdom and a pompous Messiah, and understood not his prediction of his death and passion. Though they knew him to be redeemer and savior of the world, yet the manner of his death and passion they knew not. Yet, he notes, observe how Christ commends their weak faith. Certainly he loves to encourage poor sinners when he praises their mean and weak beginnings. And then another great writer, Robert Trail, says this, Yet there is here not a word of all of this, that is their weakness, in Christ representing them to his Father. This is the constant and gracious way of our high priest. He makes no mention of his people's faults in heaven, but that those faults should be forgiven. You see, we so often think of ourselves only by the failures of our lives as Christians, Those things stand out in our minds, the embarrassment we feel, the shame that we feel when we fail to live up to our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And we can often get stuck in places where we define our whole lives by that. But listen, brother and sister, that is not how Jesus sees us. He sees us in light of his own righteousness, which covers us. He sees us in light of his perfections and not our faults and our sins. Not only are we hard upon ourselves at times, but we are often hard upon one another, quick to judge others and dismiss them out of hand when we hear of their falling How many times have we been so quickly reminded that Christ is able even the most heinous of sins that people may fall into is able to build up and restore to himself those who are truly his. Now listen, we're talking about those who are truly his. And all of us who are his are weak and frail in so many ways. Christ presents us to the Father in this way. These are those who have kept your word. These disciples did believe. Remember, he called them. They left immediately everything that they had ever known to follow Jesus. And we have as well, if we have answered his call, though our path is often fraught with many failings, it is ultimately the perfection of Christ which fills up everything and makes us acceptable to the Father. Finally, and this perhaps is the most important thing as we close out this introduction, these are men who would serve and who would be, according to the scriptures, the foundation of the church. That's why he prays for them uniquely. These are men who were called of a world that hates Jesus and hated them, These were men who were uniquely called to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world, to Jew and Gentile alike. They were men to whom the divine teachings of Jesus, of God himself, were committed. And they would be called through the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim that word 
to the world in which they lived. The book of Acts is the ongoing story of Jesus and his ministry in the world through these apostles for whom he is praying in these verses. The hatred and opposition they would face from the world is the same hatred and opposition that Jesus faced when he lived in this world. And so the Lord prays that they would be protected from the evil one. He would be leaving them behind in the world, but he would not leave them alone. These would be those to whom would first receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and through them others would receive the same gift down to this day as you and I receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the power to live godly lives. When I was gone for General Assembly, Stephen O'Neill stood before you and took the text from John 18 where Peter denied Jesus. And we were reminded that Jesus in those verses, as we've noted already, Jesus told Peter in advance, I know you're going to deny me, but I'm praying for you that you would not be lost. And he wasn't. These would be men. More we know of Peter and Paul and than we do many of the others. Uh, But these all, 11, would be men, plus the two, Matthias and Paul, of course. These would be men upon whom the church of Jesus Christ would be built, Jesus himself being the church, a chief cornerstone. That's what Ephesians 2 says. You're no longer strangers, he writes, and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He needed to pray for these 11 because the church would be built upon the foundation that would be laid through them. And that foundation is found in the teaching of Jesus Christ entrusted to them, teaching that they believed, that they embraced, that they obeyed that they would go on to proclaim upon which the church would be built. And so you see why Jesus prays for these men uniquely. And it really does tie everything together, everything. These men are unique. And yet what he prays for them, he prays for you and I as well. And I hope in the coming weeks to show us exactly uh, why that is and why we should understand it that way. Well, as we close and as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, as unique as these men were in God's plan and how he describes them in these verses, it is true of every disciple and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these marks are true of you and I if you are his disciple this morning. Just recently in a very long-term friendship that I've talked to several of you about, of a friend in my life I've known since first grade who, my family will tell you, frustrates me to no end because of his views on many things. Recently, I've been trying to be a more faithful witness to the truth of the gospel to him. He's not a believer. And so I've taken a very different approach in trying to reach him and help him understand what I've shared with him over many, many years. And here's the approach. It's the same approach, actually, in God's providence that was used in my life. 
I recently told him, point blank, that he was not a Christian. He cursed me out, said I was unfair and unkind. He was deeply offended. He told another minister friend who speaks to him regularly, who is very liberal in his views, and he was also offended. But what it's done, it's allowed me to talk about what a Christian is. If I can say to him, and I'm not his judge, but if I can say to him, based on our many years of history together, you're not a Christian, it provides an opportunity for me to be able to help him understand what a Christian really is. And so what would Jesus say as a Christian this morning? Well, we've just answered it, I think, in some ways. Christians are men and women given to Jesus Christ as a gift from the Father. They are called from eternity past in Jesus Christ. They are men and women who are taken out of the world and called to be separate from the world. And the mindset and the thinking of the world as it is opposed to the Lord and to his word. They are men and women to whom the name of God has been manifested, the name of Father and the fullness of what that means. They are men and women who have been kept by his word, who have kept his word, I should say, who are obedient to all that Jesus teaches. This is one of the areas where this friend is so clearly not a Christian. He refuses not only to receive the word, but to obey it in his own life. And these are men and women who don't lay the foundation of the church, but bear witness to that foundation by their obedience to all that that foundation speaks of in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is, and my prayer is, and I hope for you this morning as well, that this gives you some insight into how we can reach people who really aren't believers but need to understand what that means. Now, there's much more we're going to learn from this section as we move through the studies in the coming weeks. What he prays for them, he prays for us. And there are three headings that I want to follow in the future. Notice the prayer throughout this section for their preservation and safety. Secondly, I've already mentioned, notice his prayer for their separation from the world And then finally, towards the very end, in verse 17 especially, notice his prayer for them to be consecrated, separated, made holy by the word of God. But as we consider coming to the Lord's table and as the elders prepare to come and as we prepare our hearts, there's one final thing I want to say. And that really is a summary of this whole prayer. And let me put it this way. The way of giving is very present, isn't it? As we come to the table, we come to one who was given for us, body and blood, that we might know the forgiveness of our sins. But all through this prayer, the theme of giving is very much present. That which was the Father's, Jesus said, is now given as a love gift to the Son. Jesus, in turn, according to verses 1 through 5, has been given authority to give eternal life to those whom the Father had given to him. Believers then in love give back to the Father and the Son through faith and obedience to all that he commands as a love gift for the glory of God. 
And then we're told full circle, when Jesus comes, he will present us, give us back then to the Father as the wonderful picture of the fullness of our redemption on that glorious day. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that giving is at the heart of all that we come to do now at this table. All that lays behind this table, the giving of a people to Christ, the giving of eternal life by the Son to those who would believe. All of this is a picture of your lavish gift to us in Jesus and the salvation which we do not deserve and yet have been the recipients of. And so as we come now to this table, we pray that our hearts would be filled with overflowing and that our desire in gratitude would be to give our lives as a living sacrifice to you, to the glory and praise of your name. We pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.